A gunshot rang out. It came from inside the house. It was on the first floor for sure. Was it the east wing? She panicked. She knew someone was hurt. She could feel it in her bones. She knew right then what she would do and that she would never tell a soul. Nestled in what is now known as the Truesdale Estates, surrounded by sweeping views of Los Angeles and beyond, in one of Beverly Hills' most exclusive neighborhoods in the 90210 zip code, stands a towering 18.3-acre estate. That's over 18 and a half football fields. This massive gray stone structure, surrounded by lush gardens, water fountains and ponds, and all of the trimmings of a life of luxury, stands as a physical tie to the past, one full of deceit, greed, and ultimately, murder. I'm your host, Ansley, and welcome to Hollywoodland Unsolved. I must warn you that this episode may be frightening to listeners under the age of 13, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Greystone Mansion. Entering the home through large iron doors, the foyer is lined with dark wood and marble, and there is an instant sense of weight as you walk through the heavy entryway and down the stairs, but are almost immediately greeted with light from the south-facing card room. With its large open windows and extensive views of Los Angeles, the card room is a striking difference to the heavy entryway. The first floor features two separate dining rooms, a formal one and a breakfast room, as well as the original kitchen, powder room, and multiple guest bedrooms, one of them being where the murder took place. To the right of the front door stands a massive wooden stairway leading to the second floor lined with ornate carvings. Following the staircase leads you to the living quarters, rooms for the children as well as a suite for her and a separate suite for him as well as other rooms serving various purposes. I've included a floor plan of the mansion in the show notes, as well as on the website, so please feel free to pause and take a look. Our story starts with Edward Lawrence Doheny Sr., who came from humble means in the Midwest, but with his friend became the first to strike oil in Los Angeles in 1892. Fast forward a few years, and by the early 1920s, Edward Lawrence Doheny Sr., who we will call E.L. Sr. for the duration of the podcast, was one of the richest men in the United States, with a fortune built on the oil he struck in Los Angeles and later in Mexico. He was also, at that time, the largest producer of oil in the world. So, needless to say, E.L. Sr. was incredibly wealthy. He married and had two children— The first, Eileen, who passed away when she was just seven years old, and the second, Edward Lawrence Doheny Jr., Ned for short. Since Ned is the focus of this podcast, let's dive into him a little bit. He grew up your typical rich boy's life. Think Nate Archibald from Gossip Girl. Fancy private schools with a lavish, easygoing life. But he was described to have a, quote, heart of gold. Ned later married Lucy Smith, and the two had five children together. E.L. Sr. purchased the land where Greystone Mansion stands back in the 1910s and gifted the land to Ned and Lucy to build their dream home, which is exactly what they did. 
Construction on the massive estate began on February 15, 1927, and while construction took three years to complete, Ned Doheny and his wife Lucy and their five children moved into their over 46,000-square-foot mansion in the early fall of 1928. The mansion, equipped with 55 livable rooms, a bowling alley, tennis court, a pool, and a secret bar in the billiard room, I've seen it, it's sick, was all custom-built and state-of-the-art for that time. The Doheny family were no strangers to boasting their wealth, and the parties they intended to throw in the house were going to be nothing short of extravagant. There was also a whole room dedicated to guns for Ned. One account states, quote, In the five months he was alive in the house, Ned Doheny had, according to a representative, used the room's large window, which faced out onto the hills on the other side of the estate, as a perching point from which to hunt animals in his backyard. When the urge to kill for sport struck him, he would call upon one of his servants to release some of his pre-stocked game. He would eventually shoot the animal from the comfort of his great indoors and then send a servant to fetch the carcass and bring it to the gun room's adjoining kitchen for preparation, end quote. So Ned Doheny was no stranger to using a gun. The mansion became known as Greystone because of the sheer amount of stone used to build the estate gave it a, quote, gray and somber appearance. Now, before we go into the murder of Ned Doheny and the scandal that followed, I need to back up a bit and fill you in on another scandal that struck the Doheny family and can be directly linked to Ned's murder. Well, so they say. The Teapot Dome Scandal In November of 1921, E.L. Doheny's Pan America Petroleum and Transport Company placed a bid on a federal project to build oil storage facilities at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, in return for the rights to lease the land to tap some of the oil that belonged to the U.S. Navy's reserves. The Teapot Dome was a rock formation in Wyoming that stood above the U.S. Navy's petroleum reserves, and while E.L. Sr.'s company didn't get the rights to lease that land, they got the rights to lease another one in California. William G. Harding was the president at the time, and under his administration, the Interior Department was in charge of making the decision as to who the contract would go to. Albert Fall, an old friend of E.L. Sr. and the cabinet member in charge of making that decision, was given a $100,000 cash quote-unquote loan from E.L. Doheny Sr. that would later be called a bribe. E.L. Sr. sent his son Ned and Ned's childhood friend Hugh Plunkett to personally deliver the money. After Fall got instantly rich and E.L. Sr. got the rights to tap the oil, both parties fell under investigation. Ned and his friend Hugh were accessories in this crime because they were the ones who physically delivered the quote-unquote bribe. Many trials ensued, and while E.L. Sr. was acquitted of criminal charges, he lost a civil case that went to the Supreme Court. It's important to note that these trials were going on during the construction of the mansion and the months that followed Ned, Lucy, and their children moving into their new home. Ned and Hugh Plunkett were longtime friends who were said to have a brotherly-like bond. Hugh was in charge of the construction of Greystone Mansion while Ned was away aiding his father in the Teapot Dome scandal litigation, and it's been said that Hugh even signed personal checks for Ned, 
as well as being deemed his personal secretary. They had a great relationship, but there were also rumors that the two men had a deeper connection. Attorney Frederick R. Kellogg said, although Hugh acted as secretary to Ned, quote, their relationship was more than that of friends, end quote. But let's get back to Ned and his murder. Just five months after the family moved into their over $3 million home, that equals over $41 million in our current market. On February 16, 1929, Ned was found dead in a guest room. According to reports, one from the Doheny Family Reference Center at the University of Southern California states, quote, On the night of February 16, 1929, Hugh Plunkett arrived at the Greystone Mansion. He called from the gates and was told by Lucy Doheny that he should not come in. Ignoring her words, he apparently used his passkey to enter the grounds and the house, going to the guest bedroom on the first floor where he often stayed. Ned Doheny found him there around 10 p.m. At 10.30, the Doheny family physician, E.C. Fishbaugh, who was in Hollywood attending a theater performance, received a call from his maid and was told that he was needed urgently at the Doheny home. Fishbaugh arrived a little before 11 p.m. and was greeted by Lucy Doheny, who told him that Plunkett and her husband were in the guest bedroom. As they proceeded down the hallway to the bedroom, they saw the door standing ajar and Plunkett standing by it. He warned them to come no closer and then shut the door. Immediately, a shot rang out. When the doctor entered the room, he found Plunkett lying on the floor by the door, shot through the head the gun lying by his side. Doheny lay on the floor by the bed, next to an overturned chair, barely alive with a gunshot wound to the head. End quote. Something seems a little fishy about this account to me. First of all, this is the official account listed under the Doheny archives. So with that being said, there is no mention of the police being called after the first gunshot. If I was home and heard a gunshot go off in my house, wouldn't I call the police? Also, if I thought someone might have harmed my family or could hurt me, wouldn't I want to notify the authorities? Not according to Lucy Doheny. Lucy called the doctor instead of calling the police, which makes me believe that she thought, or knew, that this wasn't a murder-suicide after all. Well, yet. Let's turn our attention to another report. This one accounts two journalists who covered the murders, Leslie White and Lucian Wheeler. They theorized that the story that Lucy and Dr. Fishbaugh gave weren't 100% true. Quote, Fishbaugh told two different accounts of Plunkett's warning, with one early description stating that Plunkett shut the door softly, while his later accounts stated that Plunkett slammed the door as if in a rage. This was not the only irregularity that night. Testimonies of the maid, the nanny, the butler, the night watchman, and all of the guards sounded too neat, almost as if they had been rehearsed in advance. So all of this took place around 11 p.m., but the police weren't called until 2 a.m. That's a three-hour gap. If my husband was shot potentially fatally, you better believe I'd be calling an ambulance. So why didn't Lucy do that? 
considering the gap between the murder-suicide, calling Dr. Fishbaugh first, and the time it took to call the police, White and Wheeler believed that the stories given were not actually what happened, and I agree with them. Another particular thing? It appeared to the police when they finally arrived that the bodies had been moved. When asked about this by the police, Lucy said that the bodies had been moved because the doctor was trying to revive the men. The police had their doubts, but two days after the deaths, they ruled it a murder-suicide, with Hugh Plunkett being blamed for going, quote, temporarily insane. So what actually happened? I have a couple of theories, but the one with the most evidence is this. Ned shot Plunkett and out of fear called the doctor for help. One investigative report on the story about White and Wheeler, the reporters covering the case, stated in response to the murder-suicide theory, quote, White found powder burns around the hole in Doheny's head, which meant that the gun had been less than three inches away from his head when it was fired. Since this type of evidence usually points towards suicide, the theory that Plunkett had murdered Doheny and then killed himself started to unravel before it had even fully begun. White found no evidence of powder burns on Plunkett, thus furthering his doubt. Furthermore, the unfinished cigarette found on Plunkett didn't gel with the theory that he was a frenzied killer worried about saving himself from being committed. It didn't seem likely that a man who had just shot his best friend would then turn the gun on himself while still holding a lit cigarette. End quote. The media didn't waste any time branding Plunkett as a deranged murderer and splashed headlines across their front pages. Headlines that read, Crazed secretary kills millionaire and himself. Bullet-torn bodies found in oil man's home by doctor and family. Along with a side profile photo of Plunkett and a shot of Ned golfing with the caption, Victim of a Madman. This seems a bit extreme based on the facts, but it appeared that no one at the time was really looking at the facts. Well, other than White and Wheeler. Those headlines weren't completely off base, though. There were reports of Plunkett having, quote, mental instability, end quote, and the fact that he had just recently divorced his wife in 1928, just months before him and Ned's death. So one theory is that Ned suggested that Plunkett check himself into a sanitarium, and Plunkett reacted out of anger by shooting Ned. Within just a few days of the deaths, the police stated that it was a murder-suicide with Plunkett as the perpetrator. Just a few days. Doesn't that seem odd? The fact that if Plunkett had shot himself, there would have been gunpowder around the bullet hole of his head. But there wasn't. And also the lit cigarette. There are also reports of the gun being wiped completely clean of fingerprints. These are big things for the police to just glaze over and release the results of a murder-suicide in just a few days, and I can't reasonably believe that the police are that incompetent. But this was a rough time in Los Angeles police history, so it wouldn't be a stretch to make the assumption that a payoff was involved. Oh, and the two men had been drinking. So maybe the pressure of the legal drama with the Teapot Dome scandal was too much for Plunkett, who shot Ned out of fear slash anger slash insert negative emotion here. Or maybe Ned was frustrated with Plunkett and threatened him, 
And since alcohol was involved, we can assume that he wasn't in his right mind. Got so angry that he fired the gun at Plunkett. And once he'd realized what he'd done, Ned called E.C. Fishbaugh for help. Another theory is that Plunkett and Ned were lovers, and Lucy killed them both out of jealousy. Was the pressure of the trial too much for Plunkett? Was he worried that he was going to have to take the fall for his wealthy friend and have his life crash and burn because of it? We may never know. The two men were buried close to each other in Forest Lawn Cemetery. This was weird because the Doheny family were big donors of the Catholic Church and Ned wasn't buried in the family plot, which gives another clue to the theory that there might have been more going on between the two men than what seemed. But at the end of the day, only Lucy Doheny and Dr. Fishbaugh will ever know the truth. And Lucy Doheny made it her life's mission to never tell a soul. She remarried almost to the day after Ned's death and never looked back. As far as E.L. Doheny Sr. goes, the sympathy for a grieving father was so deep that the investigation was called off, and after only an hour of deliberations, he was acquitted. What became of Greystone Mansion? According to reports, after her children were grown and 27 years in the mansion, Lucy sold the estate to real estate developer Paul Truesdale from Chicago. Truesdale, who that area is named after, aka Truesdale Estates, had plans to, quote, subdivide and demolish the house. But in 1965, the city of Beverly Hills stepped in and bought the house to prevent this from happening. The mansion is now listed on the historic registry and is maintained by the city of Beverly Hills. The great thing about Greystone Mansion is that it is so accessible to the public. With the gardens open almost daily and the doors to the mansion opened for special events, I went there for a car show in the spring of 2016, this vault of history is so easily accessible. And I bet you've seen Greystone before and you haven't even known it. Greystone Mansion has served as the backdrop for many productions in Hollywood, including Spider-Man, The Big Lebowski, and Gilmore Girls, just to name a few. So what are your theories? Did Lucy Doheny and Dr. Fishbaugh tell the truth? Or were White and Wheeler onto something? Perhaps you have a theory of your own. Shoot me an email at hollywoodlandpod at gmail.com or tweet me at, at hollywoodlandpod. Want to try to solve the mysteries of the deaths of Ned Doheny and Hugh Plunkett? I've included addresses and a floor plan in the show notes as well as on the website. Happy sleuthing! Also, I've included a complete reference list of all of my research for the show in the notes as well as on the website, and I have links to the accounts that I've quoted in the episode, so please feel free to check them out for more information on Greystone Mansion and the murder and death of Ned Doheny and Hugh Plunkett. Next time on Hollywoodland Unsolved, we dive into the murder of a beloved starlet turned nightclub owner who was found dressed to the nines dead in her Lincoln convertible in the garage of her ex-lover's ex-wife, the untimely death of Thelma Todd. All elements of Hollywoodland Unsolved are produced by me, Ansley Gordon, with graphics by Brian Balzarini and music by my amazing father. <laughs>